All right. Um, we are in the season of the cross, the Lenten season. Uh, the Western Church has already completed that. They are coming close to uh, ascension uh, in the post-resurrection, but we're following the Jewish and Eastern Church calendars that are more synchronized to uh, the Jewish calendar. Obviously, the Jewish one is. And uh, therefore, having the resurrection happen after Passover instead of a month before. That's because it's a leap year in the Jewish calendar, and that adds an extra month, and so that's why we've just reached Nisan at this point. Now, as we look at the seasons of the cross and we think about the meaning of the cross and our call to it and our response to its purpose and effect, and we prepare ourselves for the experience of the Passover and the passion through the ritual of the Seder and the Last Supper, and the reality of the resurrection with the first fruit ceremony and the full restoration of creation at the return of our Lord, as we think through all of that, one of the themes that is found in the scriptures related to that is the theme of reconciliation. So today I want to look at the concept in a message entitled uh, Manifesting Reconciliation. I want to look at it in two ways. It's going to take me two weeks to cover it. So uh, today I'll do kind of the first part, which is what is reconciliation? So we get, in a sense, the theology of that. But a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word is not what we intend to be. And so next week I'm going to talk about how do we practice reconciliation. Uh, That will be the subject. So I'm going to talk about the various reconciliations that God did through the cross today Next week, we'll talk about how do we apply this and make it operate actually in our life. So, we begin with what is uh, reconciliation. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up at verse 18, though it's very difficult for me to do that because I'd like to do the whole chapter and then I'd like to do the chapter before that and the chapter before that and the background of 1 Corinthians behind that and Deuteronomy and all, right? I mean, the problem is the more you know the scripture and the more you realize how it goes together, you get really tired of this fortune cookie approach where people just pull a verse out of the air and then add, make it say whatever they want it to say. Paul's talking about something in a context here that's very important. So in the context of there being a judgment that is coming, I just had a class this week about uh, judgment I'm amazed every time I teach that class and I talk about the judgment of God. You guys are aware of it because around the Day of Atonement, we bring out the books, the books of of our works and the books of life, the book of life. And we know that we're going to stand before God and give an account for everything that we've done in this body. We know that. But many Christians don't. They somehow believe that when Jesus died on the cross, everything was wiped out, everything was forgotten, and it's an ollie ollie oxen free. And while that's true with regard to whether you're saved or not, it doesn't mean you're getting by with anything. You're going to deal with it here or you're going to deal with it in the kingdom when the kingdom is established. And that's what that judgment is about, the judgment seat of Christ. Then, of course, the great white throne judgment includes that and the ultimate salvation that we get. So in the context that we are going to face a judgment, Uh, Paul is saying, I want you to understand some things. And so let's read beginning at verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, the reconciliation of two warring parties usually requires both of them to come to terms. But God demonstrated his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, still in enmity towards him, he made the way for the reconciliation. To demonstrate, you know when you're going to reconcile with somebody, you're always nervous. What if they don't want to? With God, we don't have to worry about that. He has already demonstrated for all time his willingness to reconcile. So then the question is, are we willing? And that's the ministry of reconciliation. Will you reconcile yourself to God? We beg you, Paul says, to do that. So in this context, Paul addresses reconciliation. He states that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And this, in fact, is the purpose of the incarnation. The purpose of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us is so that he could be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so that's really what this is about. God was reconciling the whole creation to himself in Christ and in his cross. Now, this is more than personal salvation. In some sense, people have an idea, this world is, is useless, this world is sinful, this world is corrupt, this world has had it. And so what God is doing is he's reaching down and saving an individual and saving an individual and saving an individual. And that's not the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is for God to save his whole creation. This entire creation is going to be restored. It will eventually be replaced, but first it's going to be restored. And Christ's coming is about that, not about our individual salvation. Now, our individual salvation is included in that. And we have a tendency to, focus, tendency to focus on that because we're Americans. We're either rugged individual Americans, my generation, or we're radical individual Americans, some of the younger generation, right? But either way, we're individuals and we think that way. I got my salvation, do you have yours? That's not it. I'm part of the process of God's restoring his creation and I have come to reconcile to God. Are you reconciling as he reconciles the whole world to himself? So the first thing we want to talk about, I want to talk about this in the broadest sense first and then down, is that God is reconciling his creation. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. There was a time when, when I preached, I never could get done through a sermon, the Hosacks know this, without reaching into Romans 8. Because all sermons led to Romans in, uh, in, my, in my preaching at that time. Uh, and it's very hard for me not to, to go there even now. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, uh, Paul says, The anxious longing of the creation 
waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now what's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about when he created this creation, he said it was good, he said it was very good, and the creation didn't do anything wrong. But part of the creation, in Adam, sinned, and God said, I'm cursing the ground for your sake. I can just hear the earth saying, what did I do? Right? In other words, the sin of Adam affected the entire creation in God's judgment that ultimately uh, put this creation into futility. Waiting for the redemption of waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, waiting for the resurrection at the end of time when this creation will be restored in that sense. So then he says, because of that, uh, we know then that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of the body. When we become believers, our spirit is born again. Our mind needs to be transformed by the Word of God. But these bodies don't change. In fact, they continue to get old and fall apart. And they await the resurrection. Our salvation is not complete until the resurrection of the body. We sang one day, my beloved one's bringing. When the Lord returns, he's not coming alone. He's bringing those who sleep in Jesus. He's bringing with him those that we love that we've lost. That they will be resurrected first. We will be changed. And then we will ever be with the Lord as he establishes the kingdom. The, this salvation is going to include the entire creation that's happening. That's why the lamb will lie down with the, the lion and the lamb won't be in the lion, right? Uh, that's why a child will be able to play on the hole of a, of a viper and it won't be a problem. The earth, the whole creation is being saved. The cross of Jesus is not about only your sin. It's about the whole creation of God. And that's really an exciting thing when you think about it. So he says, we're waiting for that. However, he says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for it, we do not, what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. People who, are, who try to bring the full salvation into their life at present are not playing with a full deck. Okay? We have this in part, and we know in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then we will see face to face. We are, we are leaning towards, faithing towards, walking towards that kingdom to come that we are asked to pray for that's part of this salvation. So the restoration of creation and the reconciliation of all creation is part of what Jesus did at the cross. And next week I want to talk about how do we practice that? How do we approximate that? How do we 
live in the anticipation of that full creation. Now, the second thing that uh, the Lord is doing is He's restoring the nations. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. passage that doesn't get preached very much. And we'll pick it up at uh, uh, verse uh, 1 through uh, 15. I know it's going to talk about Israel, but I'm focusing on the nations at this point. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Talking about Israel. There are people who believe that's the case. I'm amazed how many pastors have a replacement theology. And that replacement theology is, Israel had their chance, now it's our turn. Totally missing Paul's theology on this. And Paul's had a front seat in this, right? So I'll take him over some of these guys. He says, May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. You can almost hear replacement theology Christians saying the same thing. God, they killed your prophets. they become the enemy of the gospel. And, you know, I'm being faithful to you. Uh, Who needs Israel? Right? But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there is also at this present time, and I think that continues now, a remnant, he's talking about a remnant of faithful Israel, according to God's gracious choice. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, they're seeking it through the law and to some extent through their flesh. He talks about that earlier in Romans. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And he quotes Isaiah. Give, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Now, you could read those things and say, Yeah, go get Israel, God. But you're not paying attention to the context. So Paul says these words. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. God is going to reconcile the Gentiles And he, in a sense, put most of Israel on hold while he's doing it. Thank God he did. Because if they had fully accepted Jesus as the Messiah, you and I would still be without hope and without God in the world. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the nations, for the Gentiles... How much more will their fulfillment be? It's a temporary situation. Paul says, I'm speaking to you uh, uh, who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow Israelites 
and save some of them. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, the reconciliation of us, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead and the ultimate resurrection? So he talks about this notion. So Paul explains that a temporary rejection of Israel has a purpose, and that purpose is the reconciliation of the world, and specifically the Gentiles, we who were scattered at Babel. Babel was temporary in order to ultimately bring salvation and uh, reconciliation to all of humanity. And what's the proof that that reconciliation has and is happening? Well, Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we see that before God will bring His final judgment on the earth, He will make sure that that remnant of Israel is marked for protection. Then we get these words in verse 9. After these things, I looked to behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures fall on their faces before the throne and worship God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Almost sounds like the mourner's cottage, doesn't it? Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these clothed in white robes? Who are they and where have they come from? And he said, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason they are before the throne of God. And they will serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Neither will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. God is reconciling Babel back to himself through the cross and to do that, he had to, for a part-time temporary setting, partially keep Israel from seeing their Messiah So that we would see the Savior of the world. So God is restoring the nations. But he's also going to restore Israel. And for that one we need to look back at Romans 11 again. Only we're going to pick it up this time at verse 25. God says, uh, Paul says, I do not want you brethren to be uninformed. Of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. He's 
he's complaining in the previous verses that the Gentile Christians are saying, we're better than the Jews, we're better than the Jews. They didn't believe, but we believe we're better than the Jews. Okay, I don't know what the tune was, but that's the song. Okay? And that song is still being sung in churches. Okay? So he says, I want you to, don't boast against those natural branches. God can graft them back in and they'll thrive a lot better than you will. Why? Because there's a Jewish advantage. They have the law, they have the Torah, they have the prophets, they have the covenants. They are the chosen people. And when they are given illumination, they're going to shoot right right past you. Because you came out of total ignorance, right? So he says, I want you, brethren, to be, not to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. God made a covenant with them. His grace goes to us, but he made a covenant with Israel. When I, t- uh, when I take away their sins. Look at verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God has put them under sin. He's put us under sin that we may all come to him by grace. And God is going to bring that together. So he is not only restoring his creation, he's restoring the nations that were scattered at Babel, and he's restoring Israel. That's why the disciples said to Jesus after his resurrection, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? He said, no, you, it's not for you to know when I'm doing that. Your job is to proclaim me among the nations, because Israel's scattered out there, so the gospel is to the Jew first. And then the nations also need to hear, because I'm going to heal all of it. So the restoration of Israel is important. Israel is not a package that the Messiah came in. That once we have taken him out of it, we can discard the box. This is really important because that's what a lot of people's theology is. Oh, the purpose of Israel was to bring forth the Messiah. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. They are still central to the salvation plan of God. And that is why we're not to boast against the natural branches. So Paul tells the Gentiles not to mock Israel. And and they have been scattered and partially blinded so that we Gentiles can be reconciled. But when that is accomplished, all Israel will be saved. And the full restoration of Israel and the kingdom, which involves life from the dead, as he has said, will be involved in the reconciliation of Israel. Wow. Okay. Now we run into another false theology. Okay, God's got a plan for Israel. God's got a plan for us. But we don't have to be together. Okay? And that's a false understanding of reconciliation. He is also restoring the unity of Israel and the nations. For that, we have to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Which I would like to go to chapter 1, but I don't have time. So let me just say, chapter 1, when Paul says we, he doesn't mean we believers. 
He means we Jews. In chapter 2, when he says you, he's talking to the Gentiles. So in the first time, when he's saying the gospel came to us first, uh, and God has reconciled us, given us forgiveness through the blood of Christ and all that, then he says, and you Gentiles who were different, and that's his context. So, when we get to chapter 2 and we get to verse 13, uh, he tells us what God did with those two groups in the cross of Christ. Therefore, remember that... Uh, I'm reading verse 11. I want to lead up to it. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's a bad spot to be in. Okay. You were basically up a creek without a paddle, without a map, without a compass, and in the dark, right? That's who you were. Okay? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he himself is our peace, who has made both groups. What groups? Israel and the nations. Into one, breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity the law of commandments and ordinances, so that he himself might make into two one new man, thus establishing peace. There's been no peace in this world. And might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, uh, and by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. For we both in him have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household. Being built up into a temple that the spirit of God dwells in. Now I, I want to do this so that you get it. Because it drives me crazy. There's a tendency for the church to think it's closer to God than Israel. Okay? So, up here by the ark, this is God. And Israel is here. Right? You and I, we're actually further out, but it's really down here. Right? We're far off. So the gospel has been preached to those who are near and those who are far. And we now have been brought near. Now, who does that bring us near to? Israel and God. You can't be near to God and not be near to Israel. Not possible. Because salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. He's coming back to sit on the throne of his father David and rule the nations with a rod of iron. Israel matters and must be central to our theology of the body of the Messiah, the body of Christ. We've turned the church into a non-Jewish 
club. And we're not allowed to do that. The oneness that we are have is one new man. So, the enmity between the two groups was abolished in his flesh on the cross. And what's the enmity? It's the result of the Torah's requirements, which ultimately keeps Israel distinct from the nations and separate from them for Israel's sake. Now, this got misunderstood. God said to Israel, I'm going to make you a light to the nations. Okay? So Israel comes to the nations and says, All your gods are drivel. There's only one God. He introduced himself to us. And if you will watch how we live and how we act, you will see the God of Israel when we act correctly. He will show his glory when we act incorrectly. He will scatter us and you'll know. And the nation said, we don't want any of this. And we can't get to God, so we don't like you. And we have anti-Semitism. And so anti-Semitism, over time, has Israel saying, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine over here. And so Israel is, for the most part, a light to the nations, but the ones who are the most obedient to God, we don't see. And the, the purpose of the cross is to reconcile Israel and the nations, those who are saved from the nations of Israel. And we've conveniently set up zones of separation by the separation of Christianity and Judaism. So, but we Gentiles who have come to faith in the Messiah have been brought near. We're no longer separated as aliens and strangers. We're fellow citizens with the Holy Ones and are part of the household of God. But we live in a state of separation. Now you know there are people who are married but are living in a state of separation. The goal is reconciliation. So reconciliation of Israel and the nations is part of the cross of Jesus and part of what God is ultimately going to do. Because together, when Israel is restored and the nations are joined into this one new man, this one new humanity, we will establish peace. That's full reconciliation. So reconciliation is the bringing together in restoration of the whole creation and specifically mankind, Israel and the nations, making one new humanity in shalom, in peace. Well, how do we do this? Because it's a mess, right? There's a big battle right now in those who are struggling with this, both in the part of the church that realizes we weren't supposed to be separated from Israel, and part of Israel that sees that the church wasn't supposed to be separated, both among those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. This, this is the big discussion. We made a wrong turn, what do we do? Okay? And the, the response is what is typical of this kind of thing. When you say that somebody is going to be one, you know, we say husband and wife are going to be one, and the question is, which one? Right? This is how we got in the mess. Okay. The mess is, okay, Gentiles, 
if you want to be with our Messiah, you have to be circumcised and obey all the commandments and the instructions of the fathers. In other words, you've got to become a Jew because God only saves Jews. That was what was going on in Acts 15. And that's what Paul fought against. So later the church decides we're going to do it the other way. Okay, Jews, you can have Jesus. You can come to him. He looks a lot like Zeus now. <laughs> you, you can have him. Uh, we've, we've lightened him up and we've given him, you know, our image, right? So what you have to do is you have to give up your kosher laws and you have to give up your holidays and you have to give up all that stuff, that teaching, because he's fulfilled it, not brought it into full operation, which is what they're expecting, fulfilled it as in done and done away with, which is not what the scripture says. And Jesus specifically says that. So we have lived in a time when you can be a Jew, you can be a Gentile, but you can't. You can be a Christian, or you can be in Judaism, but you can't put these together. And now there are two groups struggling with how this works. How do we reconcile this? Now, you're never going to reconcile it organizationally. We're going to have to reconcile relationally. Okay, and I'm going to talk about that next week. But it's really important that we understand that. So, I want you to think about something for this next week, and we'll talk about it uh, next week. First of all, many of us have read the book Practicing the Presence of God. And we have learned to uh, uh, practice the presence of God so that when a rainbow appears in the sky, you thank God because he's remembering the rainbow. You consider the lilies of the field. You begin to live in a way that you are acknowledging God in all your ways and he directs your paths. I had an experience this week. Um, I was kind of losing touch. And it was... I was getting angry and I was ready to do something. I don't care if it's right or wrong. And just as I stood up to do it, the cross that I'm wearing for Lent thumped me on the chest. That's what Tzitzi does for Israel, right? It's a reminder. You don't belong to you. You're bought with a price. So I stopped. Thank God I stopped. But that's the point. We forget real easy. And we need to reinforce these things. And so practicing the presence of God in obedience is important. We also practice the communion of saints. We remember that those who are uh, believers in the Lord are part of our extended family. And we do that in a multi-denominational way. Well, I believe we also have to start practicing the one new man. Now, the fullness of all this reconciliation won't happen until the Lord comes back. But we are told, if then you belong to the Lord, set your mind on things above and not on the things of this earth. So part of what we're to do is join Israel in being the light of God that understands where we're headed so that others will see the light and come to the Lord and follow that. So we have to practice the spiritual discipline of manifesting the one new man, which is neither Jew nor Gentile, but is in some sense both Jew and Gentile. It's like marriage. Marriage, the one 
uniqueness of marriage is not male or female. But it is male and female. It's a unity, not a uniformity. And that's the same thing we have to practice when we practice the body of the Messiah. So I'm going to talk about that next week, how we reconcile with the creation, how we reconcile with the nations, how we reconcile with God, and how we reconcile with Israel in a practical life approach. And that will be uh, part two of manifesting reconciliation. Let's pray.